Hello, you're listening to the Beyond Words podcast with me, Michelle Adams. This is the podcast for book lovers who are not ready to put the story down once the last page has been turned. These conversations with authors and industry insiders are all about digging beneath the surface of the stories they write and publish. This is where we go beyond words to get the inside scoop about some of your favourite books. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond Words. As a British person living abroad, I am always keen to speak to another person with a similar experience, although I have never as yet done that with somebody who also writes full-time like I do. But this week, I had the pleasure of sitting down for a chat with Will Dean, the author of the Dark Pines trilogy and also his latest book, which was the subject of our conversation this week, The Last Thing to Burn. This was a book I'd seen all over social media and I was so looking forward to my own copy arriving in the post when, out of the blue, I was surprised with the proof copy ahead of the release. It is a terrifying thriller, more claustrophobic than I think anything I've read in in quite a long time and really toyed with some of my own fears. But what this also is, is a tender story about the struggle of one woman and her determination to survive. Simply, I love this book and I am thrilled to be able to bring this conversation to you. Now, as any regular listeners will know, I always ask my guests to read a passage from their book for the podcast. And in this case, (laughs) we planned for the same thing, but actually I had such a nice time talking to Will that I totally forgot to do that. So... The original conversation um, was recorded without the reading and Will very kindly agreed to send it to me. So you'll find the recording of The Last Thing to Burn at the end of our conversation. And I hope when we hand over to Will now, you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And when you pick up the book, The Last Thing to Burn, um, you'll see what an an absolute uh, magic book it is. So you've just come off uh, the back of a first draft, as I understand. Yes, uh, standalone number three I've just written. So standalone number two will be out next year. That's set in New York. Quite a different book for me. And standalone number three, I can't talk about it coherently because I have no idea really what it's about still. And I won't until I've rewritten it a bunch of times. Um, yeah. But yeah, I wrote it in four weeks or four and a half weeks or something like that. And it's I'm still recovering from that process. <laughs> <laughs> this is your standard method, right? You, you sit down and you say this month is first draft month and you just go for it. Yeah, this is one of my many failings. This is the only way I can do it. I, 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 I'm terrified <laughs> of uh, altering the process or, or changing it. I'm quite superstitious about it. So yeah, I just, it's like an exorcism. It just, um, I, I think about the the story and the characters and visualize a lot for kind of six months normally, solidly with a lot of research. And then when I sit down to write that first draft, there's a huge amount of momentum built up in me and I kind of have to get it out. And then it, I write without a break for three to five weeks and the, the book floods out. And um, I never really get out of the main character's head for that time. And do you think that during that period that you that you go through the phases that a writer, say, who chooses to write their first draft slowly over six months, because there's a lot of stop starts, there's going backwards and forwards. Do you do all that on this sort of microcosm of, 
a first draft and, and everything is just uh, highlighted into like a few weeks. Maybe I think I do a lot of it before I start the first draft, actually. Right. I think I, I solve right. a lot of the problems that would have come about during a slower first draft before I even start. And I need to do that to have the confidence to start because what we do is such a strange leap of faith thing. It's so yeah. bizarre to think that you can tell a story that's never been told before and it'll come out of you and it'll be interesting for other people. So yeah. I, have to, I have to visualize it and spend a lot of time thinking. I think the, the time spent thinking is really like not valued enough. And we're expected to write a book here, a book every two years, but you have to do a lot of thinking and just kind of work through things and understand your characters and empathize mm. with them and be in their shoes. So I do all of that before. And then when the first draft happens, yeah, I do solve problems kind of on the fly. And occasionally I'll take like an afternoon to go for a walk by the river and think, but normally it's just, it's bursting out of me and I know where the story is heading and I can't wait to get there. And I'm excited yeah. and I'm kind of high and buzzing off the story. So it, it's, it's like a fever dream kind of process. And do you, do you find that after you've written that first draft, it changes a lot after you rewrite it? No, actually, uh, it doesn't really. It, it, it take, sometimes takes me a long time to finesse it and work on it, but the word count is generally like plus or minus 3,000 words. So it's kind of, it's kind of done. In That's terms, incredible. In terms of the plot. That you're that and, well, it's not incredible because I'm slower than a lot of other writers who spend a year writing a first draft. Like The Last Thing to Burn is a fairly short, intense novel. It took me five years to write that book. And the first draft took me three weeks. Okay. So it's right. like, I, 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 I'm kind of a ridiculous perfectionist as well. So I, I, the first draft comes out and then I spent so long like finessing Lens uh, East Midlands dialect so that it was authentic, but still readable. Didn't throw the reader out of the story, things like that. And my, my sentences, my, the descriptions of landscape, I just want to get it all right. And I, I, I kind of uh, feel quite distant from publishing in a good way. So if it takes me a long time to write a book, then that's how long it's going to take. Like, I'm not going to be that's rushed okay on this. With you, yeah. yeah, that's, that's so like... If it took you five years, when did, this, when did this novel first find its way onto the page? Has it been a, a five-year thinking process or has it been a five-year drafting process? So the idea came in 2016. At midnight one night, I wasn't expecting to have an idea that night. <laughs> it just kind of, I saw in my mind's eye this image of from above of a huge Fenland farm, this very flat, bleak landscape. And in the center of the farm, this tiny cottage that I saw from an aerial point of view. And I saw a woman walking in and out of the cottage and around it, but she never went very far. So that's all I had at midnight. And then I, I was just fascinated by her story. Like, why was she not leaving if she wanted to leave? I came to understand that she was being stopped, prevented from leaving. And yeah. between midnight and 6 a.m., I had I came up with the whole story, the entire arc, all the characters. That's, I knew exactly what the book was going to be. That's brilliant. It was weird. It's never happened before or since. <laughs> and by the morning, like, I knew what, what the story was. And then I went away for six months kind of to research and to think and to wrestle also with the idea, should I write this book? Like, is this a book that I should be writing? And then after yeah. six months, I wrote that first draft. I felt ready to write the first draft. That took three weeks. Then I think I locked it in a drawer for six months, which I normally try and do uh, just to get some distance from it. And then after six months, I just worked on it whenever I had time, rewriting it, just getting to know that my main character more. I, I like 
very intense novels where you really get under the skin of the protagonist and you feel like you're connecting with them and you're invested in them and you'll remember them years to come. So that's that's what I like to read. So that's what I aim to try to write. And yeah, it took me a long time, this one. It's because I wanted to do her justice as well. I wanted to write her in the, in the right way. Well, you, you've said a few things in that answer that I'd love to, to sort of skip back on. We haven't talked yet about what the book is about, but if you can give us an idea about what The Last Thing to Burn covers and what's in that story, but also you raised something that I thought was really interesting about whether it's the book that you should have been writing. So how did you how did you approach that concern and, and how did that translate into the book that you wrote? So The Last Thing to Burn is it's been described as Misery by Stephen King meets Room by Emma Donoghue. And that, that sounds I'm like, going with both of that. Thank you. Yeah, it's like a yeah. very claustrophobic type of story. And it's about a woman held on held captive on a Fenland farm, a very isolated farm, which is the landscape that I'm from, where I was brought up. And um, a farmer is 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 kind of living a charade of a life where he thinks that she's his wife, but in fact she's kind of he's kind of bought her, and she's been trafficked from Vietnam. And so he he lives this kind of um, weird interpretation of a marriage or of a family home and he thinks it's fine and he goes out and farms all day and he comes back expecting his kind of dinner on the table he's almost a throwback to masculinity or ideas of masculinity from 100 years ago and and she is just desperate to get away from him and desperate to get away desperate to get away from that life because whereas you know back in vietnam she had autonomy and identity and privacy and a life of her own now, she's, she's trapped in this hell. And he controls every aspect of her life. He films her 24 seven. He dictates what they eat and how it's cooked, which is basically exactly how his late mother cooked the food. So this is the story of her, not him. And this is the story of her resilience, how she manages day to day, her survival, and hopefully her escape from this place. Um, and in terms of me asking myself, do I have the right to tell this story? This was a big thing for me. I really wrestled with this question because, you know, 50 years ago, people, especially white men, wrote whatever they wanted to, didn't do the research, yeah. and they didn't really think of the consequences or the harm that that could do. And I didn't want to do that. So that's why I did so much research for kind of six months solid, just thinking about and reading NGO reports and first-hand accounts of this kind of thing. And I, I kind of came to the conclusion that I need to write this story for myself. I need to get this story out of me, but then I will only allow this story to be published if I think it's good enough to be published and if, it's, if it kind of tells the main character's truth. So I had it uh, read. My, my sister-in-law is, is Vietnamese. My fam I have family in Vietnam. So I wanted to kind of discuss a lot of the main issues with her. And she was fantastic and super helpful. A friend of mine who's half, yeah, a friend of mine who's half Vietnamese, she, she read a really early draft and gave feedback and that was brilliant. Another friend of mine uh, who works uh, within counseling uh, with a lot of uh, victims of trafficking read a really early draft and her feedback was invaluable as well. So I just, that's why it took five years because I didn't want to kind of just rush this and not, not have it done in the right way. I didn't want to yeah. uh, be insensitive to my main character. So that's why it took five times longer than my other books really. 
it's it's interesting to hear you talk about it that way about the the length of time it took and that the the sensitivity issues that you took into account in writing it because as a person I don't really have any connection to anybody that's been trafficked or who is Vietnamese but for me it felt very authentic I felt like I was reading a real person's story um and so I guess I'd like to understand what drew you to it in the first place. What was it about this story that made you want to write it so much? I mean, I, I, I find it difficult to to put into words why a story, a particular story, because, you know, as as an, as with any writer, you kind of have ideas that float by and you kind of pick them out of the out of the ether and some of them stick and some of them don't. And with this, I think it was just the main character. I had an a feel for her quite early on. And I just wanted to understand her story, her background, what was keeping her going through this terrible situation and how would this resolve itself? Because in, in the real world, awful, horrific situations like this, these terrible modern day real life crimes that happen all around the world right now, often the bad guys get away with it. And I wanted the perpetrator here to face some degree of justice or consequence for his actions. And the great thing about writing fiction is you can make that happen. Yeah. So I, I, I did want that element of justice for this main character and, and some idea of a future where this isn't her situation anymore. Yeah. And she's kind of reclaimed herself. I, I said something similar to a, another writer I was speaking to a few days ago. Sorry, I'm a bit croaky today. My voice is, is breaking. But um, I said something to another writer the other day about this kind of idea that what some of the best thrillers for me are the ones that have this thread of hope running through them, as dark as they are, as terrifying as they are. And this is a terrifying book. Um, I don't think I've felt so claustrophobic in reading a book in a long, long time. Um, but there is this heartbeat of hope that runs the whole way through it. And I, you just find yourself rooting for this person so, so much. Thank you. I mean, a lot of my favorite writers, um, I've learned over the years, kind of subconsciously, that the darker you go, the more those little tiny moments of lightness and of peace and of hope and of love are so powerful. Yes. That, that contrast is so enormous. It's a bit like, uh, the Road by Cormac McCarthy, you know, it's so incredibly bleak and miserable and yeah. awful and yeah. devastating. And then you have these little scenes where they they find a tin of peaches or pears or a Coca Cola can of Coca Cola, or, or there's a moment of of just really powerful love between the father and son, and it's just like it blows you away because it's yeah, it's so it's so impactful. So that's yeah, like with everything, I guess we are students of everything we've ever read. So. I can't credit myself with that at all. It's all about the, the writers that I've read in the past. And, and what writers do you look back on and say, these are the people who've inspired the work that I do? Because I, I know that for myself, I can look back on, you know, there are a huge number of writers that I read and that I like, but there are a very small number of books or authors that I say, you're the reason I write the way I do. Do, do you know who they are for you? I think I feel the same way. Like, I think if I write, if I read a hundred books in a year, normally there's one or two that really stick out, which I'll never forget. And I'll, I will go and reread and they will push my writing forwards in some way. They'll give me the confidence to break a particular rule or try something. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I read very eclectically, like all genres. And 
from being a child, you know, the Roald Dahl books really gave me uh, a taste for the dark and the macabre in some way. And then the Sue Townsend novels, the Adrian Moore books gave me a love for kind of some humor and that kind of real humanity and being honest and, you know, laying it all out there. And then later on, yeah. I'm, I was obsessed with Sarah Waters. I think her writing is really beautiful and I love her kind of mm -hmm. slow character development. And Michelle Faber, he's another one who kind of taught me how to, you can break rules and you can do wild things as long as the characters are authentic and are three-dimensional and are interesting and you're kind of honest with it, then you can do those things. And obviously Stephen King, you know, his book on writing is hugely important to me. I reread it every year. It gives me a lot of I hope. do something similar. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read book, it probably it? every 18 months or so. There's something... I mean, he writes in such a great way anyway, whatever he's writing, but that you just, I, I never would have said I felt like I had a mentor in writing as such until I read that book and I, and I just felt like, I know I don't know him, but I felt like I'd sat down and him just give me a really good shake and say, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Absolutely. It's such a precious thing. It's such a wonderful book. And, um, and Yaji Asi as well recently her book Homegoing really opened my eyes to how like ambitious some authors are and can be like her, that book is incredible it's short and it, it covers like three three uh, centuries and two continents and so many individual stories and they all match up beautifully and yeah so I'm inspired by so many writers um, you were also obviously inspired by your childhood growing up in that kind of location did you grow up on a farm that kind of wide expanse of land never on a farm but close to farms and in some weird little tiny tumble down cottages like this one where kind of the yeah. farmers kind of built the bathroom on the back straight onto dirt and I lived in a lot of different places I think that helps me now as a writer the fact that I lived in like 10 different villages when I was a kid and all very isolated and all on the edge of the fence, actually. And I always found the fence to be this very exotic and eerie, beautiful, strange landscape. And I'm obsessed with landscape. That's where all my stories start from. Like I see a landscape and then I see a person, normally just like a outline of a figure in that landscape. And I wanna know how those two things intersect, how the landscape yeah. has influenced that person's life. And yeah, here it felt, the landscape was so important and and in a way it makes it worse than or more horrific than room and misery because in those books the main character is kind of trying to get away but they can't really see out whereas here our main character can always see so far into the distance she can see church spires and roads and traffic and norm, normal people living their normal lives and she she wants that so desperately and it's always just out of reach um, and likewise because the farm is so flat the farmer, the man, the monster who is in control, he can see her wherever he is on his farm. He can look out of his tractor window and see her in the middle. It's like an open prison kind of dynamic. And I found that yeah. quite horrific. Yeah, actually, I describe this novel as claustrophobic, but actually the space is vast. And so that's a really interesting dynamic between this vast space and yet still feeling totally trapped. Exactly, yeah. And it is claustrophobic. The cottage is tiny. And he is in control of all of the space. That's what I think was claustrophobic. He films her and then he reviews the tapes every evening to see how well she's done yeah. different chores. And 
it's that idea of always being watched. You know, he won't let her close a door in the cottage. And privacy is something that we maybe take for granted, but it's so valuable until it's taken away. Yeah. And same with possession, the idea of possession. Like he's got loads of things, possessions, and she has four when the book opens. His, her, her ID card, which is the last thing in her own language. Uh, her book of Mice and Men, which kind of gives her hope and ideas of escape. Uh, letters from her sister and what's the other one I forgot the other one <laughs> letters ID card uh, her book anyway um, rough. yeah thank you thank you photograph of her parents and um, when she does something that displeases him he asks her to choose one of those possessions and then he will then burn it on the Rayburn stove that night and that's another thing I find terrifying that calm cool menace you know, he's not really violent. He's psychologically violent. So he will make her choose which possession to burn. And as a character, I mean, we talked about her, but also Len. Len is a character, I mean, we're obviously not rooting for him, but he's the kind of character you love to hate. He is such a big character. He fills that book just in the same way that she does, but from the other perspective. Uh, he must have been both fascinating to create and also very hard because he's such a difficult person i mean i hate him so much <laughs> with a passion and, <laughs> and um yeah he, he was uh, i'm just glad i don't have to write him anymore you know he, he's a he's a horrific character he's probably the most horrific character i will ever write i could imagine and in a way i drew upon some of the men that i was surrounded by kind of on building sites working as a teenager in summers and things and they probably were good men but just the way they spoke reminded me a little yeah. bit of Len. they channeled some of that that kind of just uh kind of arrogance and 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 assuming that everything should be done the way he thought was the right way it's like i say it's it's a throwback thing uh, to to ideas of masculinity and family from a long time ago, thank goodness. But yeah, Len is Len is terrible, and he's I think he's at his most awful maybe when he's kind of they're watching the football or the snooker at night, and he she kind of sits on the floor by his by his feet, and he will kind of stroke her hair and say, "It's not a bad life, is it, Jane? We've got a roof over our heads, food in our stomachs. Not a bad life." And that, yeah, I just had this knot in my stomach yeah. when I wrote that because. It's it's just it's it's almost a level of kind of delusion that's horrific to think about. Just that daily trickle of cruelty and and uh, emphasizing you don't have a choice but to agree with me. Absolutely, and I wanted the farmland going back to landscape and the crops and the seasons to emphasize the length of time that she's in there. You know, time is passing and we go through Christmases and Valentine's Day. We go through all of the seasons and all of the different crops that he is growing, that he is in control of. And she's doing the same things every day. And yeah, yeah. it's that, that desperation. I need to break out of this cycle somehow. You, you touched up on something interesting in your previous answer about working on building sites and having access to the way that the men that you were working with would speak, uh, and I'm assuming about life and women in general, and and that sort of you're acknowledging that you know it wasn't wasn't always a good way, and that is something that as a male writer you're probably I don't want to use the word privileged to hear because obviously 
you know, it's not the kind of conversations that you want, but it's an insight that myself as a female writer would probably never see. But you also generally have your lead characters as females. And there's such an authenticity about those characters. So how is it as a male writer that you're able to write such clear, fully rounded female voices? And what is it that draws you to them? Thank you. Um, I don't know. It, it's difficult, to, again, to explain because so much of these, so many of these decisions are kind of, they happen in the subconscious. It's not like I think, okay, I'm not one of those writers who goes, this is the CV of my new main character. She's going to look like <laughs> this. And often I don't know what they look like even. Like, mm -hmm. I don't really describe my main characters at all because I see the world through their eyes. So it just kind of, it kind of comes to me as I'm visualizing, as I'm thinking about a particular scenario in a particular landscape and I very open to writing male characters it just hasn't happened yet <laughs> so I yeah. think you know if, if if you look at my career maybe in 30 40 years time hopefully there will be a, a balance of different characters but I don't know why so far the main characters have been female I mean there's only been two there's Tuva and uh, a main character in this book but um it is a challenge, I guess, to 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 write them in a, in an authentic way or in a way that people find believable. But then I think all writing is like that. I think all writing is just empathy and letting go of your ego and trying to inhabit a character truly. Yeah, and that that's it's about what trying we all to be do. in their shoes. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and and try to understand their story for a little while. Um. You mentioned Tuba there. Uh, obviously, we're talking about The Last Thing to Burn, but we can't talk about books and not talk about Tuba. Um, when we first talked about doing this podcast last year, The Last Thing to Burn had yet to come out, and we were going to talk about Tuba and the, and the trilogy that you wrote for her, which is probably not going to be a trilogy for much longer. Um, but, but talk to me a little bit about Tuva. She, I think, was your first published novel when you first released Dark Pines. So talk to me a little bit about how you wrote that first book and how you became the writer that we now know. Well, I think a lot of it was a reaction to a failed novel. So I had a, a book before Dark Pines where the main character was a man who was basically me, but five centimeters taller. And he was extremely dull. And that book, I worked so hard for many years to try and find an agent through the slush pile and it didn't happen because the book was just fundamentally flawed and it got closer and closer to me getting an agent like I was getting full requests and then I pulled it from submission and I thought nope this is just like not it's not good enough I'm, I can polish it for years and years and years it might scrape me an agent but it's just not going to get published so I wrote yeah. Dark Pines as a reaction to that I wanted to write someone who was clearly not me who I had to spend time thinking about and empathizing with and yeah Tuva is, is such a fun character to write an interesting character to write to write I still don't understand her fully which I like because I think that kind of fuels me forward I, with each book I understand her a little better but yeah. she she's she's a really complex person and I find her really really interesting and just much funnier than me and much cooler than I am I just think she's she's, <laughs> she's uh, probably cooler than most of us <laughs> She's, it's a, I feel it's a real privilege to spend time with her each year writing a new tuba story and 
Yeah. I have a little more distance from her than I do from the standalone books. Um, she, I, I feel like she's kind of a self-contained character living her life in this fictional town. And I just kind of dive in once a year to see what's going on with the next story. Yeah. And she feels very real to me. And um, I, I, yeah, I care for her a lot. And I'm always interested to see how she approaches different uh, stories in this small town. You know, she's very interested in not so much the actual like violence of a crime, but the ripples that has in the community, the, the side effects and consequences that has in a, in a small marginal town in central Sweden. So yeah, I love writing her, I really do. I like reading her as well. She's she's a great character and I've loved that. I've loved that series of books. I'm looking forward to the next one, which is out when? Thank you. Uh, Bad Apples is out in October. That's going to be one to watch, I'm sure. I hope um, so. Yeah. With, rega <laughs> with regards to you writing about her in Sweden as a Swedish woman, you, like me, are from Britain, living in a foreign country. How did it feel to be writing about the culture that you'd moved into? That felt fine, actually, because... You know, 10 years ago, I couldn't have done it, but I've lived here now full time for, for 10 years in the forest in a very intense way. And I live near a small town, which is not that dissimilar from the one in the book. And I've been with my wife now for 23 years. She's Swedish. So I feel like I've got a good connection with Sweden and the Swedish folklore, yeah. Swedish traditions and so on, and, and the Swedish language and little quirks. So in a way, you know, I'm never going to be a 100% authentic, like, Scandinoir writer. It's not going to happen. But in another way, I have an advantage that I see these little quirks and little yeah. cultural phenomena that Swedes just think are completely normal. Like the Midsummer Celebration from Black River, my most recent book, Swedes think that's really wholesome and normal and nice. And I just find it <laughs> really bizarre and borderline terrifying, this <laughs> this this um, national celebration where the, the world does not go dark, you know, the light goes through the night. There's, there's no nighttime. And everybody drinks a huge amount, eats the weirdest foods and dances around these fertility poles and like a frog and it's just weird, weird traditions. And I find it all quite like as an outsider still. I'm used to it now, but I still find it quite exotic and interesting. There are so many things for me like that in Cyprus okay. um, and uh, I mean I, I read your books knowing that you're not Swedish and when I come across something like the Midsummer Celebration or the funny way that people talk about people's economy in, in the first book that you wrote um, I just think god there's so many things if I was ever right to write about Cyprus <laughs> there would be so many of those strange things as a, a foreigner in a new place you just see that other people do not Absolutely. And I doubt like the tourist board of Sweden will ever want me to do anything because I, I do. I'm very like, this is the way things are. And from an outsider yeah. point of view, that can sometimes come across quite harsh, but it's not. You know, it's very affectionate. But some traditions are just plain weird. Yeah. And they'll, they'll only never be weird if that's how you're raised. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's been a really positive response to the last thing to burn. How has that been seeing it step into the world and, and having people's positivity? Has it been a lot of fun, I imagine? It's been, it's been very nice. I never take that for granted, um, especially after five years, um, for this to finally materialise, this 
short novel uh, and people to react to it the way they have done is yeah, yeah it's really special and you never know you know you you write it if you write a book every year a book every two years some books resonate more than others and this is one of those that really has struck a nerve with people and I'm getting letters and emails every week now which That's I don't wonderful. normally get yeah it's really nice just saying you know wow this this I read this in one sitting which is great to hear and it ruined my next day at work because I couldn't sleep afterwards because I was so <laughs> I was thinking about the main character so it's really nice and yeah it gives me a little boost to carry on and write another book which we all need that boost because it's yeah. so it's it's such a lonely uh, pursuit a lot of the time so to have that kind of feedback is very good. And do you think that you're moving to Sweden and living as you do in such an isolated location, did that have a real impact on your ability either to write or or the kind of things that you wanted to write about? I don't know. I think in some ways it's it's helped because there are no distractions here. There's no shops or offices mm. or cinemas. Not that anybody's doing any of those things anyway right now, but there's nothing yeah. to do. In another way, though, I have a lot of like manual work to do here, which I wouldn't have done if I had stayed in Sweden in a one bedroom flat. Like I have to chop a lot of wood each year because we live kind of off grid. I have to uh, maintain my road, which takes a long time, clear ditches all the time. So but they're, they're also good in a way. They, I take a lot of time out of my day doing those, but that's good thinking time to solve a plot problem yeah. or to read an audio book yeah. or, or something. So I don't know. I think now I could live anywhere and. I would be fine because I'm, I have my habits and my patterns and my routines. So I feel comfortable now, but maybe when I was starting out, it was quite nice to have a lot of headspace and peace and quiet. I think the routines that you allude to there for a writer, no matter what it is that you're doing as a writer, the routine of it's so important for me, cleaning my house makes a real difference to me having my mind ready to sit down and write. And perhaps that's something similar to you, the, the chopping of the wood, the rhythm of having to maintain your road or the fact that you have a moose walking up to your door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think some some of that. And also in that six month lead up to the beginning of a first draft for me, it's all about like getting more and more, it kind of, the, the, the image crystallizes in my head. So I start to see things more clearly. I start to see key scenes more clearly. And then a week or two before, I'm genuinely really excited. Like I'm, I want to write and I'm also almost stopping myself from writing. Like, no, another week or two of thinking. And yeah. I don't write much down, but I know what's going to happen in the story roughly. And then when I sit down to write it, it's that build up of momentum. It's almost like a dam breaking. And then it, and that's the only way I can do it. Because if I didn't do that, or if I thought I've got six months to write a first draft, I think I would lose confidence, honestly. I think I would get halfway through and think, I can't remember what happened at the beginning, or maybe something's changed so dramatically. So the theme has changed that this is not going to work. And suddenly it would all fall down. And I feel like, you know, writing a first draft is like holding up a whole fictional world. It's very heavy kind of burden. And I can only do that for like a month. It's a very exciting way to write. Yeah, it's exciting and exhausting and the only way I can do it, I think. <laughs> Well, I hope you continue to do it because you write fabulous books and I'm sure that whoever has already picked this book up, The Last Thing to Burn, will already have loved it. It's out now. People can buy it now. Um, the next book, to you say, is going to be in October? Yeah, Bad Apple's out in October and then the second standalone set in New York out early next year. 
Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It's been a real pleasure to listen to how you come across your books, how you write them, the kind of things that you like to read, and also listening to about your quite unique uh, writing routine and schedule and the way that you do it. So just thanks so much for joining us. And um, I hope lots of people are able to go and pick up your book. And thank you very much, Michelle. It's, it's been lovely. You know, it's been lovely talking with another writer about writing. That's, that's something I miss a great deal right now. And I hope we get to do this in person at the festival later this year or next year. I think, I think we've all missed it, having that connection. Yeah. Thank so, you. Thanks. The last thing to burn. I'm not going back. Not now, not ever. My right ankle is the size of a fist and I can feel bone shards scraping together, six-year-old shards, as I limp away from the farm cottage towards the distant road. The destination is there, I can see it, but it's not getting any closer. I walk and hobble and it's still a whole world of pain away from where I am right now. My eyes scan the road, left, then right, for him. Very little traffic, lorries transporting cabbages and sugar beet, cars ferrying fruit pickers, one bus a day. I have my £5 note, his £5 note, my ticket out of this flatland hell. The creased green papers rolled and tucked into my hair, still black after these nine British years, though only God knows how. Every step is a mile. Etched aches and new pains melt into red-hot misery beneath my right knee, boiling fat and razor-sharp icicles all at once. The track is pale October brown, the mud churned and dried and churned by the tractor. His tractor. I move as fast as I can, my teeth biting down onto my tongue. I'm balancing different pains, managing as best I can. He's not coming. I can spot his Land Rover from a mile away. I stop to breathe. The clouds are moving over me, urging me out of this forgotten place, helping me at my back, pushing me along towards the road, towards that one bus a day with my five-pound note hidden in my hair. Is that? No. Please, no, it can't be. I stand completely still, my ankle bones throbbing stronger than my own heart, and he is there on the horizon. Is that his truck? Maybe it's just the same model. Some plough salesman or school teacher. I look right towards the town past the bridge and left towards the village, places I've never been. My eyes lock onto the Land Rover, his Land Rover. Keep driving for the love of God, be someone else and keep on driving. But he slows and then my shoulders fall. He turns onto this track, his track, the tractor, his farm to his land. I look right at the nothingness, the endless fields he's sculpted and the spires in the distance and then left the wind turbines and the nothingness there, and then back. That's when I weep, tearless, noiseless weeping. I fall, I fold forwards with a crack, a sharp stone beneath my right knee, 
a blessed distraction from my ankle. He drives to me and I just kneel. With a clean, clear thinking head, maybe I'd have managed to escape. Not with this leg. Not with him always coming back, always checking on me, always watching. It's my sister in my head now, and I will not let him in. My sister, my little sister, it is you that gives me the strength to breathe right now on this long, straight-churned mud track in this unseen flatland. I'm here for you, existing so that you can carry on. I know what's to come. The fresh horrors, and I will endure them for you and you alone. He stands over me. Once again, I exist only in his shadow, consumed by it. I won't look at him, not today. I think of you, sister, with mother's eyes and father's lips and your own nose. I will not look up at him. I've made it past the locked halfway gate but no further. It's still his land all around, smothering me. He bends and reaches out and gently picks me off the dirt and he lifts me higher to his shoulder and carries me on towards the cottage. I am as limp as death. My tears fall to the mud, to the footprints I created an hour ago, the men's size 11 sandal prints, one straight, the other at right angles, that one a pathetic scrape more than a print, each step a victory and an escape and a complete failure. He walks without speaking, his strong shoulder bulging into my waist, hard and plateaued. He holds me with no force. His power is absolute. He needs no violence at this moment because he controls everything the eye can see. I can feel his forearm at the back of my knees and he's holding it there as gently as a concert violinist might hold a bow.